Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. The readings for our podcast for this week are for year A, the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, which don't show up every year in the the lectionary as you go through because those Epiphany Sundays move around based on how early or late Easter is. So in order to get all the extra Epiphany Sundays, you'd have to have an early Easter. Our texts for this Sunday are from the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 9 through 18. The epistle reading is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 23, and the gospel from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. So we start out in the Old Testament with the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and 9 through 18. Now, before you tune out Leviticus, what is the importance of the book of Leviticus? Most Christians ignore this book altogether. It is very law-heavy. It is also fairly grotesque when you read some of the things that are being prescribed in these laws to the Israelite people, like uh, various purity laws and how to cleanse themselves from diseases like leprosy. The beauty of the book of Leviticus, other than simply saying that it is God's word, so it is good, the beauty of the book of Leviticus is that it shows you how God's people were living under the old covenant as they sought forgiveness, and what that looked like is they had the whole sacrificial system and they had to offer animal after animal after animal. And then for us to know today that all of that has been done by Christ. Christ is the one and for all sacrifice for our sins. We don't have to bring bulls and rams and goats and so forth. And Christ is the one who makes us clean from our uncleanness. Uncleanness worse and deeper than leprosy. It's all done by Jesus for us. That is the the key to reading your way through the book of Leviticus. And to do so with the joy of Christ is to know that he has done this for you. Now, Leviticus actually says the word forgive more than any Old Testament book. So there's that too. However, despite these things, again, most Christians will avoid this book, and the lectionary really does too. There are only three spots that this shows up in the lectionary. Two of them are in year A, and it's the identical reading. So we have this reading on the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, which can also be the reading for proper 25. However, both of those are readings that often get skipped. Because the Sundays after Epiphany, again, move based on the date of Easter. You'd have to have a fairly early Easter to get all the way to a seventh Sunday after Epiphany and not have entered Lent yet. There's only eight Sundays after Epiphany possible and you'll often get significantly less. And then proper 25, 
I don't, I haven't done the math, but roughly half of the years, proper 25 is going to be erased from our lectionary and covered over by the celebration in Lutheran churches of the Reformation. Proper 25 and 26 are the two options for Reformation Sunday, depending on how early, well, depending on how Advent falls in relation to Christmas at the end of a year. The lectionary has some moving parts. And then the 26 or the proper 27 can be erased by All Saints Day, which is the following Sunday. So every year you lose proper 26, unless you have a congregation that chooses to go ahead and use those proper readings instead of going to the the holiday readings for Reformation Day and All Saints Day. You'll lose 26, and you'll either lose 25 or 27. So these Leviticus 19 texts often don't show up. Even though they're on the calendar twice in year A, you don't always get them. Again, I haven't done the math. I haven't looked at it. It's possible, I suppose, you could get both in the same year and have two Leviticus readings, but it's also possible you could have neither. And the other time it shows up is in year C, proper 10. That's not one that you're going to lose. So that's the only time that you can be certain you'll see Leviticus during the summer, year C. There, it's only 19 verses 9 through 18, but optionally, your pastor can add on chapter 18 verses 1 to 5. So this 9 to 18 section is always there. We get nothing else from the book of Leviticus in all of the lectionary readings, the three-year circle. So what do we have? And why do we have it? Well, our... Our texts are going to be revolving around the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, which is God commanding us to love our neighbor, to love all people. And really, this section of Leviticus does that and gets quoted in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So this is why uh, we have it for this reading. We're going to begin, and it's going to be verses 1 and 2 to start. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. God declares to Moses to speak to the people. That's pretty common in the Pentateuch, and it's going to be a a list of laws, a list of expectations that the Lord has for his people. And it begins with the words, you shall be holy. Now, is that holy as imperfect or holy as in set apart? If you're not familiar with it, that is uh, really the best two definitions for this English word, holy. To be holy is to be perfect, that is to be without sin. God is certainly holy in that way. But we can also describe holiness as being set apart. So I I like to use the reference to the tabernacle and the various utensils and things that the priests were supposed to use to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. They are referred to in Exodus as holy. It's not that they're perfect. It's that they're set apart. They have a specific function. You are not to use them for anything else. That's true also of the incense that's burnt as a, a fragrant aroma to the Lord. It's true of the anointing oil. And there's even warnings in Exodus about anyone seeking to make one of those recipes for use in their own personal home or life. These things are holy. 
They're not to be used that way. Now, in this context, saying that Yahweh is holy and then calling the people to be holy, it seems to be a one-to-one. So if we take it as perfect, we should take it perfect in both places. If we take it as set apart, it should be set apart in both places. I think we have to take this one as perfect. Can we talk about Yahweh as being set apart? I suppose we could, but I think our default when we're talking about God himself would be perfection. So this is the idea. God is commanding that his people be perfect, and this is God's expectation. Is it an impossibly high bar? It is. But that doesn't mean God cannot expect it of us. Just as he expected it of Adam and Eve in the garden, he expected us to be perfect, to obey his law, to do as he gave us to do. And so the rest of the reading is going to give us some of the things that he expects us to do. Now again, the connection to Jesus. Christ has done this for us. Where we failed, he didn't. Where we weren't perfect, he was. He fulfilled the law, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and following. He fulfilled the law and then became our sacrifice to forgive us, to redeem us. There's going to be a striking similarity with verse 2, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy, to the last verse of our readings for the day, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which says very similar. But I'm going to hold off on that one until we get there. Let's go ahead to verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. These verses are going to be about caring for our neighbor, or as the final verse will say, loving your neighbor. And so how? Well, okay, verse 9, harvest is going to be a common thing. Many Christians today don't really think about harvest because we live in this industrial age and we have only a handful of farmers. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. There are many farmers, but it's a very minority of the percentage of the population compared to what it would have been in the past. So this is an image that maybe isn't as easy for us to to think about, but the picture is it's pretty straightforward. When you harvest your field, so as you're out there cutting down the grain and binding it into sheaves and carrying it back to your barns and so forth, or the threshing floor, don't go right up to the edge. Leave some grain at the edge of your field. And as you're cutting stuff down and you're, you're picking it up, don't pick up every single piece. Right? Go ahead, gather the bulk together, bind that up, but don't go back and spend your time picking up little bits and pieces. I mean, this is something that you can resonate with with other areas of life. You know, you're cleaning your house, so you're sweeping and, and, and so forth, and you scoop up the, mo- the bulk of it into the dustpan and you throw it away. Then you go back with the dustpan and you scoop up just the little tiny bits that were left behind. Don't do that part. That's the picture. Now, it's, it's a picture with food. You're going to leave that behind. Why? 
the edges of your field, the extra little bits on the, on the ground. Leave them behind because the poor among you need them. Care for them. Provide for them. Feed them. And the same with the grapes, given there in verse 10 as well. The sojourner is a foreigner who has come to live among you. He's not necessarily become part of the people. He's, he's a traveler, but he's there for the time. We don't get as much of that either, the random people that just wander through our community for a season and then they disappear. We don't recognize it as easily, at least, as they once did. It's still there. It still happens. Now, we actually see this happen, biblically speaking, in the book of Ruth. Ruth is going to go to Boaz's field, and she's going to pick up the gleanings from the harvest. That's Ruth chapter 2, I believe. So, this is about generosity. It's about caring for your neighbor. It's also about contentment and not being greedy. Right? You could see the farmer pushing back and saying, that's my field. I grew that. I deserve that, to which God could easily say, who made it grow? Who gave it to you? It's only entrusted to us by God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not ours. It's his. And he's telling us, be generous with what I give you. Now, application today, if you're not a farmer, you have an income. It's not yours. Be generous with it. Everything that God entrusts to you is just that. It's a trust from God to you. Use it for the good of his kingdom, not for the good of your own belly. God will fill your belly. That's Matthew 6. Trust him. God provides. You go and love your neighbor. Be generous. All right, verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Now, have you caught on to that yet? In the text, verse 2, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 18 all end with these words, I am Yahweh. Okay, so verse 2 has a few more words. I am Yahweh, your God, am holy. I am Yahweh. The reason we are to do these things is because God is God. And we are to be like he is. This is who he is. This is what he does. He is generous toward us. He does not steal from us. He does not deal falsely with us. He does not lie to us and so forth. Right? He does not oppress us or rob us. He does not curse us. He does not put stumbling blocks before us. He does not do us injustice. He does not show partiality against us. He does not hate us. Just kind of plowing through the text here. This is who God is. This is who we are to be. So looking back at verse 11, we would see you shall not steal, and we would put that together with the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment. So don't take what doesn't belong to you. God did not entrust it to you. He entrusted it to someone else. It's a very different way to look at stealing, isn't it? If you're stealing something, you're taking something God gave someone else to care for. That makes it even worse, right? Um, God did not give it to you. 
and then dealing falsely. Dealing falsely is theft. It is stealing. Uh, the picture here, probably in the minds of them, would be, for example, to use scales that you might weigh the product that you're selling. So if you're selling a bag of grain, and then you would balance it out, counterbalance it with the, the payment in a trade, for example. But the false dealings would be if you filled that bag with only part grain and you filled it with other stuff as well. That would add to the weight and make it seem better for you. That's a false deal. You have stolen from your neighbor. There's lots of ways that we can do that today, being dishonest about the things that we, we try to sell, about the condition of something that it's in, whether you're selling a house or a car or an item on eBay. There's lots of ways that we can deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. I'm not sure everyone always within Christendom thinks that lying is against the Ten Commandments, but here it is. And if this isn't enough, I would point you to John chapter 8, verse 44, that says that the devil is the father of lies. And that, in contrast to Jesus, in later in the gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is truth. Satan is lies. If you're lying, you're doing Satan's stuff. You're not doing God's stuff. So not even the, the little lies. The scripture does seem fairly clear about this. Not swear by my name falsely. I'm going to see that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, about taking oaths. Jesus will simply tell us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. It comes from Satan. So again, similar to lying, just, just speak truth. We are to be people of the truth. God's intention here is not profaning his name. We want to exalt his name, glorify his name in front of our neighbors, that they may also see God and believe in him, trust in him. And this does come forth in the Sermon on the Mount as well, from Matthew 5, verse 16. That might very well be the purpose statement for the whole sermon, that we would do good works in order that our neighbor who sees our good works would glorify God who is in heaven. That is, our good works are done on behalf of the name of God then our neighbor would not look at us, but they would see how great our God is. Verses 13 and 14, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired hand shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Oppression is to harm your neighbor. It might be a word that we take for granted these days as there's a lot of oppression talked about in American culture. This is intentionally putting your neighbor into a bad situation that they have trouble getting out of. Could be physical power that does this. So the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians kept them down, would not allow them to rise up. In a sense, that is robbing your neighbor. It prevents him from 
possibly managing the things God is entrusting him to manage. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night. What's the problem with that one? Well, the issue there is daily bread. They didn't have banks and savings accounts like you and I do. They didn't have money stockpiled for for weeks or months ahead. They earned their paycheck. They got paid at the end of the shift if they were working for someone else, and they went to the market to buy the food on their way home that they would need to give it to their family. They would buy food for that night or for that coming morning. So if you withhold their wages until the next day, you are likely taking a meal off of their table. You're taking a meal from the stomach of that man's wife and his children. It's not good. Verse 14 talks about doing things that are evil to others even though they can't tell. The deaf won't know that you're cursed and the blind man won't know that you put that stumbling block there. That doesn't make it okay. That's hurting your neighbor. Don't, don't hurt your neighbor in unseen ways. And there's lots of ways we can do that today, especially in a digital age. I don't think I'm even give you ideas. You already have some of your own, I'm sure, of ways that you can hurt somebody that they would never even know you did it. Don't do that. <laughs> don't hurt your neighbor. That's the point here. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in court. This is literally what the Eighth Commandment means. You shall not bear false witness. Do not wrong your neighbor in the court of law. So they're brought before the judge, which at the earliest time was Moses himself. They're brought before the judge. Don't lie. Don't speak falsely. Don't say you witnessed something that you didn't witness. And don't not say what you witnessed if you saw it. Speak truth. That connects very well to some of the verses before this. Don't be partial. So don't be partial to the poor because he's poor thinking that you're doing him some kind of favor. Don't be partial to the rich, thinking that he'll do you some kind of favor. Be truthful. In righteousness, in perfection, you shall judge your neighbor. God is a God of truth. You want to talk about bearing false witness in court? Look at the trials of Jesus in the Gospels. That's what comes of it. But thanks be to God that Jesus was willing to endure that for us in order that our sins would be forgiven, taken away. Don't go around as a slanderer among your people. That would be to tear down your neighbor's reputation, which is why Luther will talk about reputation as he explains the commandment. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Now keep that connected to the first clause about slander. There are laws in the Old Testament about appropriate times for the death penalty. So this is not saying that, but in a false way. Again, as they did to Jesus. False testimony that was being done to lead to his death. Don't stand for that. When you see false testimony, rebuke it. And certainly don't be the one to give it. Don't do this to the life of your neighbor whether that leads to his death or the destruction of his reputation, which can be just as harmful. 
Verses 17 and 18, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So hatred of brother, as seen originally with Cain and Abel, is decried here. Don't do it, lest you incur sin because of him. Hatred leads to murder. And let me point this one out to you from 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. John writes, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you hate your brother in your heart, you are sinning against your brother in your heart and also against the Lord. So, put away hatred. We are not capable of hating rightly, justly. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Uh, kind of a twofold thing here. These are not quite hand in hand the same thing. Vengeance is where you get revenge. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. Bearing a grudge is not necessarily the same thing. Bearing a grudge is continuing to hold something against them. You hurt me, I don't like you. You hurt me, I'm never going to talk to you again. Those are grudges. And that's something that even, even the Christian church wrongly approves of today. We are not to bear grudges. We are to forgive. We are not to seek vengeance. This is Romans chapter 12. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, which is actually a citation of the Proverbs. We are to forgive. Forgiveness is to put down the sword. That is to say, you hurt me, but I'm not going to hurt you back. It's also to put down the shield. That's the grudge part here saying, you hurt me. I'm not going to put up a wall between us so that you can never interact with me again. That would be a grudge. You've wronged me, we're done. No more. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is the most cited Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. It is cited eight times, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, which we'll read in a little bit, Matthew 19, verse 19, Matthew 22, verse 39, Mark 12, 31, Luke 10, 27, Romans 13, verse 9, Galatians 5, 14, and James chapter 2, verse 8. Eight times the New Testament returns to this verse. And again, we avoid Leviticus so much that most people don't recognize that that's what's being quoted in the, Old, in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. But this is the second table of the law. That's the Matthew 22 section that Jesus describes the greatest command as the first, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So commandments 1 through 3 about loving God, 4 through 10 about loving your neighbor. As Jesus loved us, so we are to love one another. That's where this is going. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. This is who he is. This is what he does. He loves us. And so we are to love one another. 
And what greater love has there ever been than the love Jesus Christ showed to us by willingly laying down his life for us? That's John 15, by the way. No greater love has someone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Christ laid down his life for you and for me. Thanks be to God. The epistle text for this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 23. And this text is an immediate follow-up. If you're coming in off a of year A, the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, then you would have verses 1 through 9 of that chapter. And so you're following it immediately with verses 10 to 23. Uh, let's take verses 10 through 15 first, as that's the first paragraph, the way ESV has it broken up. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it but it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. According to the grace of God given me, Paul admits that his work in the church is a gift. God has given him a gift to be able to serve in this way. And so now, Paul is like a skilled master builder laying a foundation. The picture is, again, of a skilled worker who would build the foundation of a home. Paul laid that foundation, and the foundation is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is our firm foundation. The house built on the rock will stand. The house built on sand, well, that will shift, and that house will collapse. We build our house on Christ. And so Paul has laid the foundation in the church in Corinth. He is the one who planted this congregation, and now others are building up on that. This is really revisiting a conversation from the first chapter where he already talked about how they were divided amongst themselves about I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ from chapter 1 verse 12. Paul is saying that the foundation has been planted, built, and now there are new men building upon that. He uses another illustration as well in the first part of this chapter, that he has planted, but God gives the growth. God waters. And this is sort of the, the illustration, the image here, that different people have different parts to play. And as we're going to get at the end of this section, it's all good. Everything belongs to you. We'll come back to that. So Paul has built a foundation, and now the pastor of their congregation is building on that foundation. This really is going to connect us to what Peter writes. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul built the foundation. Pastor is building upon that. 
each and every one of you, but you're also building upon your own, right? As you study God's word, as you worship, as you receive the sacraments and so forth as God's people, you are building on the foundation that was given to you. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, which is going to be the next paragraph of this text. You have faith. Build on it. And I think really the rest of this paragraph may quite go in that direction. You building up your own house. Let each one take care how he builds on it. So Paul gave each Corinthian Christian that start as he brought the faith to Corinth. He brought the gospel to them. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I guess the picture here would be you either have a house or you don't. If you don't have Christ, if you don't have faith, you are homeless. You are simply tearing this down. You're destroying the house. You're going to go live off in the woods, in the wilderness. You're going to do your own thing. There's only one foundation that stands. That's Jesus. So whatever you build on top of that house, if you build it up with gold, silver, and precious stone, or if you build it up with hay and straw, how do you build it? Now, as we continue with the theme that we just described, that this is you building upon the foundation that's already been laid in you, that you are a Christian, you have Christ in you. Build up that foundation. Build upon that. What are you filling yourself with? Are you digging richly into the word of God? Colossians chapter 3 tells us so. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This will build you up solid. Are you singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs? That's also Colossians chapter 3. That'll help build you up too. Are you being encouraged by your brothers and sisters in Christ? That will help build you up. Are you receiving Christ's body and blood as often as you can in the mystery that is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? That'll definitely build you up. Or are you letting your faith be built by weak cliches? God helps him who helps himself, which is not a Bible verse, by the way, although apparently, according to polls, most people think it is. Are you believing that you can go about your life, fill yourself with things of the world? How many of us would actually build a house out of hay? We know what will happen. We know that house would fail. And yet that's what we often seek to do. It's the spiritual battle. It is the sinful nature that wants to put up this, this weakness because we'd rather chase after the world. And so on the last day, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So the picture is that on the last day, the Lord will burn your house. Metaphorically, also literally. Let's cover both. Metaphorically is really the direction I think Paul's going with this. And this is the idea that what you have done, what you have built up, that spiritual house that we just talked about from 1 Peter 2, how you built your faith will be put to the test by fire. Worldly things will not survive. 
However, because the foundation is Christ, even if you've built junk food on top of your house, you built your house out of donuts, it is possible that you will still be saved because the foundation is Jesus Christ. And as long as the foundation remained and you did not abandon that foundation and say, I'm going to go live in the wilderness, I'm going to go do my own thing. This is the picture that even the weak faith are saved. Thanks be to God. There's not one of us that is always building strongly on our foundation of Christ. Thanks be to God that he saves weak sinners like me. That's the metaphorical picture, the image that I think Paul is going for. Now, there is also the literal image, too, though, that the house that you have built for yourself in this world will perish. It doesn't matter if it's a skyscraper or if it's a, a hut with a tin roof. The Lord will burn it on the last day when he cleanses this heaven and earth, either recreating it and restarting it over or disposing of it entirely and building new ones, it will perish. So in that metaphorical sense, the spiritual house, the way that you have worked on your faith, the way that you have sought to seek and trust in Christ throughout your life, it will be found out on the last day. But as long as there is faith in Christ, you will be redeemed, you will be saved. Versus the literal picture, which is, you know, if you've spent your life building up stuff in this world, all that stuff's going to burn. If you've been focusing on your earthly legacy and on your wealth, all that's going to perish. But as long as you still believe in Jesus Christ, you can escape that fire. But the contrast would be the one who has spent his life ministering to others so that they too survive, spent his life encouraging faith of others and helping them build up their spiritual houses that are their own body and soul. All right, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We have to start here with what the temple is. The Old Testament temple was the place where God had promised to dwell in the midst of his people, to forgive sin, and to speak his word with them. It is his dwelling place among them. And this is John chapter 1 that the word took on flesh, Jesus took on flesh, became incarnate, and tabernacled with us, dwelled with us, as most English translations will translate that word. But it is tabernacled from the Greek, a fun word. Anyway, it is the place where God dwells with us. And so you are God's temple because God's spirit dwells in you. It's one of a few places that that is said in the New Testament. The Spirit dwells in you. Jesus dwells in you is also said in the New Testament. Thus you are the temple, the place where God dwells. That's quite a statement. God lives in you. Thanks be to God. You have faith, faith that was given to you at the moment of your baptism, faith that was given to you when you first heard the word. This is good news. Now, this is my own personal opposition to things like tattoos. 
also anything else that would willfully and intentionally harm the body. But basically, you know, if I'm God's temple, if I'm the house and it's a holy thing, why would I seek to modify it? It's not just tattoos, but then you also think about other ways that you might try to change and shape your own physical appearance as though the way God made you to look isn't good enough. I do have a caution about that, and this body image thing is a big deal in our culture and has been ever since Genesis 2, by the way. Well, Genesis 3, the fall into sin. They were naked and they were not ashamed is the end of chapter 2, and then once they realize that they're sinners and broken, even though it's only Adam and Eve and all of creation, all of a sudden uh, they're ashamed of their bodies. So it goes all the way back. Sin causes it. But think of it in a different way. I encourage you to. You don't need to alter your appearance because you are God's temple. He made you. And you are precious in his sight. So anyway, that's my own uh, personal thought on this. I wouldn't take a can of spray paint and go up to God's house and seek to paint it. We would seek to care for it and present it as holy and beautiful as God has designed it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is a picture really of martyrdom. So you are God's temple. If somebody destroys you, God will destroy them. We talked about that vengeance idea with the Old Testament reading, and that fits. That also brings us then to Romans 12 again, that God will have vengeance, but we are to love our enemies, which brings us to the gospel text for today. So there are a lot of connections between those words. This is the martyrs in Revelation 6 crying out from under the throne, wondering how long until God avenges those who have, well, avenges them by defeating those who have killed them. God's temple is holy, perfect, set apart, and you are that temple. All right, verses 18 to 22, well, 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This paragraph really starts out about pride. To think that we are something in this world is to deceive ourselves. All of this belongs to God. And yes, he entrusted to you. We'll come back to that. That's the end of the paragraph. But at the moment, if anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. Why? The wisdom of this age is folly. It's emptiness. I mean, honestly, just look around you at American society right now. The things that they think are wisdom, the things that they boast in, put that back in the first paragraph. It's all going to be burned up. None of it makes it. The more earthly wisdom we have, the less we think we need salvation. The more we think we can save ourselves and it leads to our own destruction. Pride is evil. Become a fool. 
empty yourself of worldly wisdom in order that he may become wise. That would be Colossians 3, 16 again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs together with thanks in your heart to God. This is the picture. This is also the same as Paul in this very same letter saying that he desires to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The wisdom of this world doesn't make it. Build up your house with things that endure. Focus on building up your faith. Focus on the word. Focus on worship and sacraments and receiving what is good so that you have something good to build your house with. The wisdom of this world is folly with God, foolishness. And again, it is perishing. It is written, cites from Job 5, verse 13, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Crafty. That's first applied to Satan in Scripture, is it not? In Genesis 3. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That's Psalm 94, verse 11. Let no one boast in men. That's Ephesians 2, that we would not boast in ourselves, but rather recognize that it's by grace that you are saved through faith not of works, so that no one can boast. Then we have 22, well, 21b through 23, all of this going together, and it's a bit of a confusing verse. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All of it belongs to you. because all of it belongs to God and you belong to God. Everything is his, and because you are his, thus you share in everything. We are co-heirs of Christ, to use language from elsewhere in our theology of Scripture. So Paul is yours. Thanks be to God. Thirteen letters from our New Testament. Such beautiful, beautiful instruction uh, for the Christian faith to point us to Christ, to love one another. And Apollos and Cephas, two of the men that they've been fighting over who they should be following. Cephas, another name for Simon Peter, means rock in Aramaic, just like Peter means it in Greek. All three of these guys, they're yours. Don't fight over who you're following. They're all good. Thanks be to God for all three of them. Even the world. Look around you. The trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the the plants, the flowers, the blue sky, that guy that lives next door, all of it, it's good, thanks be to God, for these good gifts that he has entrusted to us. Life, God's mercies, Lamentations 3, are new every morning. Thanks be to God. Each day is a gift, thanks be to God. It's a gift that we breathe. God breathed the breath of life into Adam. He's given it also to us. Now notice even death is on the list. Calling all these things God's gifts to us and then death makes the list. Death does not own you, you own it. Because God has defeated it. You've defeated it. Death is not your master. Death is not a threat to you. 
death simply brings you to the side of Jesus. As he will raise your body from dead, he will raise body and soul together to live forever, present or future. So today, next week, next year, forevermore in paradise, it's all yours. You literally are immortal. You cannot be killed. Because even if the world puts you to death, Christ raises you from it. Both present and future are yours. And that is said equally of any man, woman, or child. The children are not the future of the church. The children are the church present and future, just as you are. All are yours because you are Christ and Christ is God's. I mean, it all goes together. Lastly, our gospel text is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Now, before we start this text, just a reminder to you of what we've been going through. If you're following up on Epiphany here, we've been in since the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, Matthew 5. We've got it four weeks in a row in our text. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus speaking gospel, the Beatitudes, about how you are his and you receive all these blessings, that is, gifts, from him. But then Jesus spends the rest of the sermon in the law, which is a bit backward for how a Lutheran pastor would normally preach, as we would usually start with the law, how we're broken, what we've done wrong, and then we would move to the gospel and how Christ has forgiven us, saved us. That's probably your normal pattern, at least. Anyway, Jesus speaks gospel and then law. Really, if you want to break it down a little further, he does the Beatitude Gospel, and then he moves into a section on our calling, which was in the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. And then he moves after our calling, salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill, into how we are to live. There are two drastically different ways to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You can read it as A... This is what you're supposed to do. This is the law. Do it. He takes what was Old Testament law, how people thought they understood it, and he makes it harder. He takes the bar and he lifts it up so high nobody could possibly hurdle it. That's one way. The law kills. Second use of the law kind of the thing. The other way, though, is one that I've been studying more about over the last few years, and I'm I'm quite convinced that this is what Jesus is doing with this text, and it comes really from this very verse, or well, this section of our, our text today, the idea that Jesus is actually pointing out this is the extent of your calling. And so as he makes these contrasts and talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, for example, this is the way the world works. This is the way the people around you are going to behave. You do differently. They commit adultery. You don't. Why? Again, we're going to see it. I think Jesus says it very specifically in verses 46 to 47, but the purpose of this whole sermon seems to hinge on verse 16. After the call of who we are to be, salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill, Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The function of this sermon for Jesus' hearers seems to be live differently than the rest of the world so that the world will see how great God is. 
and that they will worship him too. Our lives are not to be lived for ourselves. Our lives are to look different as we serve others. And this text is going to, I think, show that very clearly. But let me read the, it's two paragraphs. Let me read verses 38 to 42 first, which doesn't show it as clearly as the second paragraph will. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus takes again something that they're familiar with, words that they've heard before, and often they're scripture. They don't always end up being scripture, but in this case it is. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. Now, in fairness, that original law was actually a law of mercy. It doesn't really sound like it on the surface, does it? We hear it and we think, well, that's, that's kind of mean. That's, that's pretty strong. Retaliation, vengeance. But the point was, that guy hit me, knocked out my tooth, I'm going to kill him. That's what our sinful nature wants to do. Our sinful nature would escalate. The Exodus 21 law hindered escalation. You cannot go beyond the harm that you've received. It was actually a thing of mercy. However, what does Jesus do? Don't resist evil. Don't resist the one who is evil, uh, I should say. And so he gives examples. If somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek to him too. Now, this is one I think that we've run away from as a church body today. We try to make excuses. But our excuses don't hold up if you just keep reading the paragraph. So if somebody hits you, let them. Do not resist the one who is evil. That doesn't sound good. I should be able to defend myself. That's one excuse. Another other reading would be the idea that, well, it's your right cheek. And they would slap with their right hand, so in order to slap your right cheek, that's a backhanded slap. It's more of an insult than it is physical violence. Okay. Well, what about the rest of the paragraph? (laughs) If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So he takes your outer garment. Give him your undergarment. Give him everything. Give him more than he takes. He's suing you. That's wrong. Christians should not sue one another in the first place. But even if an enemy sues you, give him more than he tries to take. I'll just go ahead and say suing is theft. You're stealing from that poor person. Give him more, is what Jesus says. If anyone forces you to go one mile, the Greek word here is a a military term. It's being basically pressed into service. If the military, if a Roman soldier makes you go one mile, carrying their stuff, for example, go two. That's a harsh word, isn't it? Most of us would say, no, they can't force me to do anything. I'm free. Uh, That's a lot of American crying out. I don't want to do that. Go two. This is what they did to Simon of Cyrene, by the way. 
forcing him to carry the cross of Jesus to Golgotha. And it, it moves from enemies straight into generosity to the one who begs from you, give. To the one who wants to borrow, give. And when you go right back to the beginning, to the one who would seek to harm you, okay, give him your body. Let him harm you. To the one who wants your stuff, okay, give. Give him your stuff. It's just stuff. I'm cautious to say it's just the body. But I'm saying it, again, cautiously. Christ will raise your body. If your neighbor kills you, Christ will raise you. It's going to be okay. If anyone's going to force you to go one mile, give. Give them two. Jesus teaches us to live differently than the world. The world would hit back. The world would would seek to sue back and lawyer up, as we'd say. The world would flee from service. The world would, would... turn a blind eye to the beggar. The, the world would not lend to the one who's in need. Live differently. The stories of the martyrs who wouldn't fight back, who allowed themselves to suffer harm, I shouldn't say they don't fight back. They don't fight back with fist and violence and sword. They fight back with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Read some of the martyr accounts. Profound, profound words that they speak. Uh, Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's A Martyr's Faith in a Faithless World is a fantastic read. Um, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is historically quite a common one. There's a lot of good in it. There's a lot of not good in it. Um, If you've got your hands on one of those. I've been working my way through a book called Extreme Devotion. It's a 365 days devotion on, you know, just a page a day, different stories of martyrs. It's from the Voice of the Martyrs, a group that helps Christians who are being persecuted. There's a lot of good in it. There's a lot of bad theology in it though too so I don't I don't straightforward recommend something like that read the martyr stories if you can find places to find them read about what happened to the apostles and how they they didn't fight back with with sword and violence but with the word of Christ find the account of Polycarp who when the soldiers came to arrest him fed them a meal, and he spent that time praying. And then when they finished their meal and he had finished praying, he willingly walks with them to the stake. And he's got some strong words for the one who orders his execution. Beautiful story. And so many of those martyr story accounts are, are those that would help encourage us to be strong in our faith as well. This is a reckless generosity that does not care about myself, but cares for my neighbor in different ways, right? The one who begs from you, you're you're caring for them by giving them what they didn't have, but the one who's harming you, 
uh, you're caring for them by letting your guard down instead of fighting back. The world would expect you to fight back, and they are being disarmed sometimes by your meekness. That's not weakness. Don't mistake it as such. Meekness is to have power and choose not to wield it. That's not, that's not normal. Why won't you fight back? This is what Jesus did for us, by the way. All of it. All right, second paragraph. And I do think this is going to lay out what I was talking about before very clearly for us, especially verses 46 and 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot to say with this one. But again, Jesus doing the same thing, quoting something that they're familiar with, and then uh, teaching them. So he starts with Leviticus 19.18, which is why we have that as our Old Testament reading. This is one of the eight New Testament citations of it. But they've added to it. They are hearing from their teachers, the scribes and Pharisees and such, not just Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor, but also hate your enemy. Jesus says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This goes very much so with anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. From the paragraph before, love your enemy. It does not love your enemy to shoot him. Let God have the vengeance. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember, from the Beatitudes of this sermon. If you're being persecuted, you're being blessed. Again, something forgotten by Christians today. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is yours if you're being persecuted. Rejoice! It's not one that we see. I think, um, what is it, the movie Risen maybe gives the best visual depiction of this I've ever seen, where... The Roman soldiers are seeking to find the body of Jesus after it's gone missing. We as Christians know he has risen from the dead, which is, of course, the point of the movie. And it depicts what happens as the soldiers might have been looking, trying to unearth the body of Jesus Christ, and they arrest one of the disciples. I think it's Bartholomew, if I'm remembering the film correctly. And they persecute him. I mean, there's, it's minor. Uh, there's a little torture. Like they strike him, something like that. And he's just, he's just giddy. He's beside himself. He's so enthusiastically joyful. It's kind of contagious, that scene. Let me tell you. If you get a chance, check it out. It's a fun movie. It's extra biblical because it focuses on something the Bible doesn't really focus on. That would be the Romans and the Jews trying to find Jesus after he rose from the dead, after the third day. If we know from Scripture, they certainly would have been upset by that. And so they go looking. And that's the theme of the film. But it's an excellent picture of this. He is excited 
because Christ is raised, and nothing can take that excitement from him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, be glad, for yours is the kingdom. You are blessed. Blessed, gifts, gifts of God. It's a gift to be persecuted. It's good. Pray for your persecutor that they may repent. That's the goal here. Love your enemy so that he repents. That's the goal here. This is not what the world does. Verse 45, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That one who's persecuting you, God made him too. God loves him too. Jesus died on the cross for him too. And at the moment that you're being harmed by him, you don't know his outcome. You don't know his heart. You don't know if he will repent before it's too late. He might. There is still hope for him. So we pray for him. The Lord loves him. The Lord has chosen to give his life for him. And the Lord still provides for him, still cares for him each day. Now, verse 46 and 47 is why I take the Sermon on the Mount to not be Jesus lifting the bar so high it's impossible to keep, although I think it can have that function. It's possible for Jesus to be doing both things at the same time. But primarily, I take it to be about Jesus telling us to live differently so that others will see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven, which was verse 16. Because he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Look, the world does these things. This is how the world lives. You are to live different because you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are a city on a hill. Live different. And that's the final line then. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I don't like the ESV translation of this verse. The Greek word in the opening is esestha. It is from the Greek verb eimi, which means to be. It is the second person plural. So second person, you, you all, y'all. But it's a future, and it's a middle. I like the NASB a lot better, which says you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. On top of that, it's a, it's, a, it's a future middle. Middle. Which gives it more of a reflexive nature. So maybe more literally, you yourself will be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The way ESV has translated it, it's definitely law. You, therefore, must be perfect. It's law. You have to do what God does. That fits very well with the, okay, I'm going to raise the bar so it's so high nobody can jump it make the law impossible to keep. But this statement can also be gospel. 
You are to be perfect. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Grammatically speaking, it can read that way. Did you know that's true? The day is coming where you will be perfect without sin when Christ has brought you into paradise? And because that's true of you then, why not live it now? Why wait? Start now. I mean, yes, you're going to fail. But strive for this. Seek to live as the Father because you are his and he is yours. The Spirit dwells in you, to go back to our epistle text. Don't live like the world does. Put that to death. Live like the Father. Live like the Son. Live like the Spirit. Live as the Lord does. Sacrificing of yourself out of love for the neighbor. That even our enemies may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen.